we're continuing now in our uh, Bible study series in the book of Exodus. We were in chapter 7, so we'll resume in chapter 7 for the moment, please. Turn with me to chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh makes you speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may be that it may become a serpent. And again, we talked, we mentioned how Herod the Great, also a type of the Antichrist, as Pharaoh is, said the same thing. Um, this is important. You have two significant types of the Antichrist saying the same thing. Remember, it's always a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks a sign. And the Antichrist and false prophet will be wickedness personified. They will literally be a incarnation of Satan at one point. The Antichrist will be like an incarnation of Satan um, seeking a sign. And of course, the Antichrist and false prophet will put on a sign. Now, the way Jesus refused to put on a sign and, and wound up uh, under the most unspeakable condemnation. That is a picture of what happens at the end. Um, the apostate church will follow the Antichrist and false prophet. They will be putting on signs and wonders, spectacular, extraordinary, the like of which history has never seen except the true miracles of God. The miracles of the Antichrist and false prophet will be the closest Satan has ever come to, to doing what God can do, but he will not do it. Then we see here, the story continues, when Pharaoh says, speak to you, work a miracle. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The first thing we see is the world, being in the power of the wicked one, will have its counterfeits of the servants of God. They will have their sorcerers. They will have their wizards. They will have their practices of the occult what we call in Hebrew makshafut, or sometimes in Greek mesmero. We get the word mesmerized. Satan will always have his people who will do signs and wonders that will mimic what God does. Let's begin to look at some of the examples that we see of this throughout Scripture. Turn with me, please, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. Daniel 2, 2. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king of his dreams, so that they came and they stood before the king. God had his, Satan had his. Daniel chapter 4, verse 6. So I gave orders to bring to my presence all the wives men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream, trying to do something that would counterfeit what God was going to do. Look with me also, please, to the book of Daniel chapter 5, verse 7. Daniel chapter 5, verse 7. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners, or the diviners, the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read the inscription or explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now we see this happening uh, throughout the book of Daniel. Satan having his conjurers, having the Chaldeans, who were a sect of, of Babylonians known for the magic arts, and diviners. Diviners are people with 
familiar spirits, people with familiar spirits. We see this consistently throughout Scripture. Satan will always have his equivalent. Look with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 9. And there was a certain man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic arts in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astounded them with his magic arts. And when they believed Philip's preaching, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed that after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And he observed the signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed to them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was being bestowed through the laying on of the, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to them, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intentions of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in bondage of iniquity. But Simon said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they began on back to Jerusalem. Now, when we read Eusebius, we see that this Simon Magnus, Simon the Great Simon, was a well-known figure internationally. He was a well-known figure throughout much of the Roman Empire, certainly the Eastern Roman Empire. He was a major internationally known figure who was able to astound people. People were astounded by him. But the power that the apostles had was greater because the power that the apostles had was from the Holy Spirit. So with Moses and Aaron, the power that Moses and Aaron had was greater than the power of Jonas and Jambres, Pharaoh's magicians. It was greater than those who were trying to mimic them. Now, Pharaoh's magicians found this out. Simon Magnus found this out. The conjurers, the so-called wise men, the magicians of Babylon, the diviners, found this out. Those who operate in the occult by an occult spirit will find themselves outgunned by those who have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. They will be outpaced, they will be outdrawn, they will be outperformed ultimately, when it's really up against God. Now, unfortunately, the late John Wimber wrote a book called Power Encounters. That was not a very good book, doctrinally or theologically. But it was a book that distorted certain truths, that distorted certain truths. Um, in the scriptures, however, we see the exact truths. The first thing we see is that the rulers of the secular world, they had their own version of people who are like this. Those who can interpret dreams, those who can foretell the future, those who can do miracles, those who can do things like this, these were big and wide-known things that took place in the ancient Near East. Going back to the book of Genesis, chapter 41, just like Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in the book of Daniel, Pharaoh had a dream. A Pharaoh had a dream way before the time, of course, of Moses and Aaron, going back to the time of Joseph. 
Pharaoh had a dream. Um, and he again, he called his magicians in verse 8. It came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all his magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret that for them. And obviously, Joseph was the exception. Joseph could do it. You know what I'm saying? Daniel could do it. The servants of God who have the Holy Spirit will always command the most power because God's power is limitless. It, it is omniscient. It is boundless. It is endless. Um, it's, it's beyond unfathomable. Yet the world will always try to mimic it, will always try to counterfeit it. I'm uh, not far from the Normandy beaches from D-Day in World War II, Second World War in June of 1944. They took place about a half hour from where I'm situated. Omaha Beach and these places are, are just near me. And there's a huge American cemetery and a huge British cemetery of the people who were killed on D-Day in the, in the Normandy landings. And um, British intelligence, MI6, actually re recruited astrologers who were doing the astrological charts of Adolf Hitler, simply because they knew Adolf Hitler was into the occult. He was certainly into astronomy. He was looking at the zodiac, the stars, and figuring out what, what was likely to happen. And he would make strategic decisions and political decisions, but also military strategic decisions based on what the astrologers were telling him. And so British intelligence would find out what his astrologers were telling him by doing his chart of, of, of his zodiac. Uh, <laughs> the world always wants this. The world always wants to access supernatural power. But only the people of God have the real power, the Holy Spirit, but the world will always try to access it. Now, we can talk about Pharaoh, we can talk about Nebuchadnezzar, we can talk about Adolf Hitler, but let's talk about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was more reliant on the advice of his wife than, than any president in modern history, some, some presidential historians say. He was giving a speech once when he was running for the presidency the first time, and in his speech he said, quote-unquote, it is well known that trees are responsible for 85% of pollution. And of course the media got a hold of this and blew it up, and after that his wife would stand on back of him and make sure he didn't say anything stupid. Now, we know that Ronald Reagan suffered later dementia, and he became completely senile, and some people speculate he may have had the first symptoms of senility during his presidency. That may be the case. Um, during the uh, Contragate investigation, when his administration was being investigated both by Congress and criminally for giving weapons to terrorist Iran, uh, he kept saying, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember. Well, he was either telling the truth or he didn't remember. Uh, don't know. But I know his wife... <clears throat> had a major role in his public speaking and what he would say and what he wouldn't say. And we know now from two presidential historians, too, that Nancy Reagan was in league with Jean Dixon, the fortune teller. She had an astrologer who'd come to the White House. She had another diviner come to the White House. Nancy Reagan was a practitioner of witchcraft. She practiced witchcraft regularly. She went into astrology. She went into the occult issued into fortune-telling, and then she would advise her husband. This has always, always happened. It's always happened. Satan has always tried to influence world leaders through demonic means. Uh, always trying. Now, this relates to something we're told in Daniel. We need to pray, and also the New Testament, pray for those who are in authority. The early Christians were even told to pray for the demonic Roman emperors the pagan Roman emperors. Um, if human government, if human leaders are not being influenced by our prayers, they will be influenced by something else or someone else. That is for sure. Whether you like them or not, we are to pray for them that we may live peaceable lives. If they're not influenced by the prayer of the saints, we can be sure they'll be influenced by the demonic. Um, Satan wants to do that. He, Satan was in the White House with, with, with Reagan um, through his wife. Satan, you know, goes all the way back to Pharaoh with 
Joseph in the book of Genesis, chapter 41. It's throughout the book of Daniel, and it's certainly here in the book of Exodus. Satan wants to influence world leaders and world events through supernatural demonic power. But the power is indeed supernatural. It is indeed supernatural. It is not, I'm in France at the moment, leger domain, sleight of hand. It's not all trickery. There are those who use trickery for sure, but there actually is access to, to demonic powers um, through occult means. And again, the ultimate manifestation of this will be antichrist and false prophet who are prefigured by Jonas and Jambres, by the, by the magicians of Pharaoh. But God's people will always have the ultimate power. And again, the diviners and magicians of Babylon knew it. The magicians of Pharaoh knew it. And in the book of Acts in the New Testament, Simon Magnus knew it. They will always know that they are outgunned, that they are up against God himself, whom they can only counterfeit, mimic, but they can never win. Now, this is what's important. This is not the first time God, or the, I'm sorry, the only time God used a serpent as an image for, for Christ. The serpent beguiled the woman in the book of Genesis. Pay attention. This is a little bit complicated to explain. Satan as a deceiver is represented by the Nahash in Hebrew, by the viper, by the serpent, okay? Paul talks about this in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians. The, the serpent beguiled the woman. Paul was afraid the church would be seduced by Satan the way that the viper seduced Eve, okay? Jesus spoke of the religious leaders of his day as a generation of vipers. Vipers speak of spiritual seduction, spiritual seduction, okay? Or snakes, vipers, they speak of spiritual seduction. Yet, he who knew no sin became sin. This is explained for us clearly in John's gospel. If I be lifted up from the earth, the way Satan lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Satan took, uh, Moses took the staff and he put the bronze serpent, what we call in Hebrew, the Nahushtan, then the hushtan, he put it on the staff of Moses and lifted it up. Now, it's interesting that the staff of Moses became a serpent, but the nahushtan had to be mounted on in the same staff. The nahushtan had to be mounted on it. Why was Jesus represented as a serpent? He had no sin. He took our sin. He who had no sin took ours, okay? When God looked upon Jesus, he saw total innocence. But when God put our sin on Jesus, he saw sin, and he poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus was actually represented by a serpent. On the same staff that turned into a serpent with Moses and Aaron, Moses would put the Nehushtan on it. And when it was lifted up, remember the fiery dragons? The fiery, the fiery serpents, rather, would stop biting the people? Would stop biting the people? Well, this is very important. When we look upon Jesus, lifted up on the cross, Satan does not have the power to torment us. He does not have the power to torment us when we look upon the lifted up Messiah crucified on the cross. But why did those fiery serpents bite the Hebrews? Because of their sin. When Christians go into sin, they open the way and they open the door for Satan to oppress them. Now, I'm not saying all demonic oppression comes as a result of sin, but certainly it is one way in which it happens. And Satan torments believers. He torments believers. We give him an open door to do it. You're giving the keys to a burglar. When you go into this unrepentant sin, the serpents were biting the people. But when they looked at the Nahushtan, the brass serpent lifted up on the same staff that turned into a serpent, Moses held up, it stopped biting him. When a believer turns from sin and goes back to the cross and looks upon the crucified Christ, who became sin in their place, 
Satan loses his power. Uh, he may try to tempt, he may try to, 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 to oppress, he may try to do this, but remember, he, he cannot bite, he cannot really hurt us. If somebody is in sin and they're not repenting, Satan can hurt us. Satan can hurt us, and God will allow him to do it. Even as an instrument of correction and judgment, God will allow him to do it. But by looking upon the serpent on the staff, he loses his power. We repent, we, we confess our sin and renounce it and go back to the cross. When it's lifted up, Satan loses his power. He loses that power. Now, this is the same staff that turned into the serpent would have the Nehushtan on it. In two places, we see that God manifests his power through a serpent. But why this idea? Well, again, it is the seducer. Satan has seduced the whole world. Satan has seduced Israel. Satan has seduced the Gentile nations. Satan has seduced Adam and Eve. Satan seduces the worldly church. He seduces worldly Christians. He seduces the apostate church. It's been seduced. Satan is the seducer, but he's not the master seducer. He's not the master con artist. When you're trying to seduce, you're trying to trick somebody. You're trying to con somebody into believing something. Let's just think, and I'm not trying to be crude here, but sexual seduction. Outside of holy wedlock, if a, if, if, if a male is trying to sleep with a female, to copulate with the female who he's not married to, he's trying to seduce her. If he gets a hold of a virgin or something, he's trying to seduce her. He's trying to convince her that he loves her and cares about her and that it's right that she consents to engage in fornication and something wrong. She gets seduced into it through her own carnal desire. Now, it's it's her own carnal desire that makes it possible, but you got two sinners. you got the seducer and the seduced, okay? That's what happens. You make someone think something is right or acceptable or good when it isn't. That is how seduction works. One of the ways that people are really seduced spiritually is the occult. The cult super is, is super seductive. People get into fortune telling, they get into Ouija boards, they get into astrology horoscopes, and it's frightening. It's frightening the power Satan can leverage over believers, um, um, over people who get into the occult. But what do you do when believers get into it? There was this guy called Robert Breaker, and he's an absolute arrogant lunatic, and an arrogant lunatic. But he seduced many thousands, probably tens of thousands of Christians in the year 2017, saying that the prophecy of Revelation chapter 12 would be, would be fulfilled on the 23rd of September 2017, because in the astrology, in the horoscope, in the zodiac, the, the moon would be in Virgo. And there were thousands, on a Christian website, thousands and thousands of Christians were buying into this nonsense. I know, I, I, I'm not trying to revile, but a couple of guys who, who they behave like a pair of clowns. They behave like a pair of clowns, and they bought into this. And these were people who claimed to have had discernment ministry and be in discernment ministry, and they bought into this. The occult has a tremendous power to seduce. Now, this is all Satan. It doesn't matter if it's the occult. It doesn't matter if it's something sexually sinister. We have political seduction. We have political seduction. Hitler seduced a whole nation, a whole nation into thinking he was going to make Germany great again after the Versailles Treaty. Look what he did. The final victim of the of, of, of Hitler of, and of the Nazis were the Germans themselves. The, Look at the feminist movement. The feminist movement seduced women into buying into their agenda. 
What did the feminist movement do with women? It defeminized them. It masculinized them. I don't need a man. Anything a man can do, I can do. So they would sleep around like like um, like unsaved men do. You know, it, 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 sexual freedom and all this kind of stuff. And then they find out when they're in their 30s, they've hit the wall. They have an empty egg carton. <laughs> no husband and no father. And they're no longer the kind of merchandise. They're, they're, they're used merchandise. They're no longer what they were in their 20s. Women control dating. Men control marriage. And it's over. The final victim. It's going to be by the year 2045. By the year 2045, most women in the Western world will be unmarried. And, uh, and many of them, most of them wanting to be married. They've just turned men off. Men will use them sexually like a disposable razor. You know, you, <laughs> that's all. They're one time. It's like a disposable razor, um, a throwaway. That's what they've become. And that's what the feminist movement has done to them. The feminist movement, ultimate victim of the feminist movement have been women. The ultimate victim of, 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 of Hitler and the Nazis were, were, were the Germans. The people who are seduced become the ultimate victim of the seduction. Be, always become the victim of the seduction. That can happen to whole nations. Unfortunately, it can happen to churches. It can happen to churches. You have widespread spiritual seduction in the church today. You've had this with the word faith money preachers. You've had it with the ecumenical movement. You have it with the new apostolic reformation. This is spiritual seduction. And it will turn against those churches and those Christians who are seduced. The one who is seduced will always wind up in trouble. Always wind up in trouble. But Satan is always on back of it. Satan is always on back of it, and he's very good at it, and he has a lot of experience. However, there is somebody, remember, seduction is a con job. You're conning somebody. Satan is conning somebody. You know, a, a corrupt political leader. You know, it's 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 seduction. They're con they're conning people. Look at the United States. Barack Obama. Did, did the plight of American blacks get any better? No, no, it didn't. The average black family's income in the United States after two terms of Barack Obama went down by nearly a thousand dollars. Black families lost purchasing power and income after eight years of Barack Obama. They, they, they got nothing. They got absolutely nothing. But they were seduced into thinking if we vote for this guy, he's going to change things for black people. It, well, anything he changed for black people, we changed for the worst. You know, just look, look, look at it. It's, it's seduction. They know how to seduce. And there's a demonic power on back of seduction. Doesn't matter if it's sexual, doesn't matter if it's political, and certainly, perhaps above all, is the occult. Is the occult. But it gets into the church. There's spiritual seduction in the church. However, as good as he is as seducing, and he's on back of all of it, and as powerful as these demonic agencies are who animate seduction, the process of seduction, there's one person who can outcon them. We are told in the New Testament and the Gospels that if Satan, uh, concerning the Gospel, that if Satan knew about the resurrection, that the whole thing was going to blow up in his face, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was a gambit. Satan thought he won. He got the Jews to reject, most of them, to reject their own Messiah. Jesus, God becomes a man, and he's crucified, he's dead, he's in the grave. Bang. God conned him. God conned him. By killing Jesus, he made it a way for our sin to be atoned for, and then God raised him up and gave eternal life. It was the gambit. God outconned the devil. And there's a bigger, until now, that has been God's biggest outconning of the devil. When the Lord Jesus returns, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again on a permanent scale, on a permanent scale when Jesus comes back. Hence, you've got the seducer, the serpent, okay? 
Jesus is represented as a serpent with an ahushtan on Moses' staff. And here we see Moses' staff turns into a serpent. And Aaron's serpent eats their serpent. Okay? Aaron's serpent eats their serpent. Now, again, we have to understand the relationship between Moses and Aaron. As we looked at last week, God told Aaron, Moses, that Aaron will be your prophet your spokesman. As it were, the church has a prophetic ministry. We have the Holy Spirit. Remember the scripture tells us that the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now that does not mean that every born-again Christian has the gift of prophecy. Some do, some don't. But it means that the church, the church itself, is a, is a prophetic vehicle, is a prophetic vehicle. It declares the word of God, and it declares the future. It is our task to declare the word of God, and it is our task as the church corporately to declare the future, okay? God will always have a spokesman, okay? Well, that's us. That's us. We declare it, okay? Our serpent will eat their serpents, <laughs> We have something more powerful, the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, they know it's more powerful, just like Simon Magnus did. Now, what we notice about Simon Magnus is he wanted to buy it. People who become involved in the occult do it for money. They do it for money. I've told the story before. I will perhaps go through it once again, just because it's appropriate for this particular Bible study. I was in Africa with Dave Royal, and we were going into Zulu areas, preaching, doing evangelistic meetings. And I had a Zulu translator with me who would translate me from English into Zulu. And we went into a village where there are witch doctors. And this is so common in, in, in so much of Africa. Witch doctors in, in South Africa are called Sangormas. Sangormas, they're witch doctors. And you see them, they got, when they're in the market selling their trade and selling entrails and omelets and all this kind of stuff, they, and talismans and things, they put this white makeup on their face and they have these big horns and things like this. It's really weird. But they have a tremendous power over people. People are afraid of them, very much afraid of them. It resembles what you see in Ireland when the Irish people, when St. Patrick came, the Irish people were afraid of the Druid priests. They thought that these priests had some kind of power. Well, there's a reason you see people saved in Africa so much into the touch not my anointed thing, taking that verse out of context. They transfer onto the money preacher the same kind of thinking that they had concerning a witch doctor. You don't speak against them. They have power. They can hurt you. You'll get hurt if you speak against them. I saw how the Sangormas were able to control these people's thinking by spiritual seduction. So we had a meeting, and they wanted, to, and they didn't see all that many white people, but they wanted to see what the great white Mabwanas were going to tell them. So out of curiosity, a number of Africans came, Black Africans in, in this village, <clears throat> and it was a fair amount of people there. And I was translated, and I spoke from Acts chapter 8. I spoke about Simon Magnus. And I said, look, he wanted to buy it for money. Some Gormas always think about money. They want money. It's only about getting money out of you. <clears throat> and people know this because they would go to the market where the Sangorma was, and if you got sick, you'd pay the Sangorma to read entrails or read stones and tell you who put a curse on you that made you sick. Or if somebody died in your family, who put a curse on them that made them die? And the Sangorma would tell them, through this occult reading of entrails and things like this, and then you'd pay the Sangorma to put a curse on the person who put a curse on you. And of course, <laughs> if something happened to them, then 
their family would go to the Sangorma and pay the Sangorma to find out who put the curse on them. It's unbelievable. It was quite a racket, quite a racket. I uh, was out in the middle of, of <clears throat> this area going to a village called Mpopo where we had a church, a kind of a church, and there was nothing there. But then I saw this big house surrounded by barbed wire with SUVs in front of it. And I thought it was some kind of a government building or something. And it was the home of a Sangorma. The Sangorma was rich, the people were poor. People who are into the occult, they do it for money. They do it for money. People who read tarot, tarot cards, they do it for money. I had a friend who was a drug dealer. We did things together, we shouldn't have before I was a Christian, and his wife was a practicing witch, and she would read my tarot cards. And she saw in the tarot cards near New York City, this was in Jersey City, New Jersey, but near New York City, she saw in the tarot cards I was going to become a Christian. She actually saw that I was going to become a saved Christian. And she began freaking out and, and, and saying, don't you burn me, don't come back and burn me. And she could foretell things sometimes with incredible accuracy. She could foretell things about money, about relations with women. She could tell things with considerable accuracy. Um, I saw what it was. I knew people who were into it, and I'm sure many of you did. There is a power. But the Lord always wins. Peter outperformed Simon Magnus. Daniel outperformed the magician's of Babylon. Joseph outperformed the <coughs> soothsayers of Egypt. M Moses' snake ate their snakes. God cons the con artist. God ultimately always wins. Satan cons the world. Satan conned the third of the angels. He conned the third of the angels. He conned the world but God cons him. This is all represented in what we see here when Jonathan Jambres could turn their staffs into snakes, but then the staff of Moses given to Aaron ate theirs, ate theirs, okay? Now remember, the authority that Moses gave to Aaron when he handed him that staff, Jesus has given us spiritual authority. We have spiritual authority from Jesus as his spokesman. Let us remember that. There is much to this text. Well, let's continue now. We're up to verse 14. They each threw down his staff in verse 12 into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. God always wins, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened to him until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned into blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die. And the Hebrew says that the fish will, will, will stink. That's what it literally says. Decaying flesh, rotting flesh of the fish will be putrid, will be a foul fragrance. I will strike the water that's in the Nile with my staff in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Take your, said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters. Literally, it could be like canals. This is in the land of Goshen, the Nile Delta. Over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools. 
This was the breadbasket of Egypt. And over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land, both in vessels of wood and, and in vessels of stone. Uh, there shall be blood in everything. When you try to draw water, it's going to have blood in it. Well, the Nile meant everything. I've been to Egypt a number of times. Maybe you have been there. And when you go south, like just south of Cairo, like Saqqara, where the steppe pyramids are, you see the Nile is there, and there's a stripe of green on the west side and a stripe of green on the east side that is cultivated. A stone's throw, it immediately turns to sand, desert, just desert everywhere, desert, desert everywhere. Their existence depends on the Nile, and the Nile would overflow once per year, creating what they needed for irrigation purposes. The Nile is a river that flows not from north to south, but from south to north. Hence, when you say Upper Egypt, you mean Southern Egypt, and when you say Lower Egypt, you mean Northern Egypt, okay? Cairo and Alexandria are in Lower Egypt. They're in the Northern Egypt, okay? If you go down to Abu Simbel, and you go down to Elephantine Island, and you go down to Karnak, <clears throat> and, and so forth, and to Luxor, that is Upper Egypt. It goes from the south to the north. The Nile is formed by two other source rivers. One is the White Nile, and the other the Blue Nile. They come together in Khartoum, Khartoum, the capital of Ethiopia. Now, Dr. David Livingston, the famous Scottish medical missionary, among other things, discovered the source of the Nile. He went all the way down deep into Black Africa and into Zambia, and he discovered Lake Victoria, and then he discovered the source of the Nile. That was, that was not until the 19th century. That was not until the 19th century. But the other branch of the Nile comes from Ethiopia. It comes from Ethiopia, and it flows to the northwest, and they converge in Khartoum, the White Nile and the Blue Nile, and then they go down. Egypt, actually, they had the Russians build it for them. They built two dams, two dams at a place called Aswan, Aswan. And they created a huge, huge lake to retain enough water to be able to irrigate enough land to try to feed a country with a huge population, most of it covered by desert sand. The population density in Egypt is incredible simply because it's a desert. All the urbanized areas and the agricultural areas are along the Nile itself. They created Lake Nasser. Right now, as we speak, the Ethiopians are building dams. That's going to reduce the amount of water going into the Nile. Now, this is very interesting. This is very, very interesting. If the water from the Nile is removed from going to Khartoum, it is going to lower the level of the water and the amount of water going into Egypt. It will increase the wealth of Ethiopia, both in terms of water resource, agriculture, and electrical electricity generation. Ethiopia will be able to literally export electricity to other Black African countries, but it will have ramifications for Egypt. I have no doubt in my mind that these kind of events happening in the Middle East today, affecting the Nile, fundamentally affecting the Nile, that have ramifications for food production and even for potable water, drink, drinking water. I have no doubt that these things have some kind of a prophetic meaning. It is, again, as we know, no coincidence that the same nations that were at the center of world events in, in biblical times are at the center of world events again, Egypt being one of them, Israel, of course, being at the epicenter, but you see Syria, Arabia, these same countries at the center of world events in biblical times are there once again. So here we are. And again, it's affecting the Nile. Everything has always depended on the Nile. Now, 
they believed it was God who made the Nile overflow, God being Ra and Egypt being the son of Ra, the, uh, the Pharaoh being the son of Ra. He, so by a judgment coming on the water, it was a judgment on his claims of deity. You understand? The judgment coming on the water was a judgment on their false religious system of idolatry with the worship of the sun god and of Ra. But it was also a judgment on Pharaoh himself in terms of his claims of being a supernatural man, of being of being deity incarnate, okay? Only the Messiah would be deity incarnate. The Greeks had a mythologized version in, Cer in Hercules, but the Egyptians literally believed that Pharaoh was a god-man. And later, of course, the Romans would proclaim the same thing beginning with Caesar Augustus. Nonetheless, this all, all of this God-man stuff is not just ancient history. It is future history. We are going to see it manifested again as never before with the Antichrist and false prophet. All of these things are going to be manifested again with the Antichrist and false prophet. So as we look at these judgments now, remember, we're not just looking at prophetic history of what happened in the past. We are rather looking at prophetic history of things that are going to happen in the future. Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verses 4 to 6. Revelation, chapter 16, verses 4 to 6. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou, who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. The blood judgments. Remember, the wicked woman is drunk with the blood of the saints, remember? She's drunk with the blood of the saints. But we read in Revelation 7 and 18, her cup gets filled up. Her cup gets filled up. Remember? There's the cup of God's wrath. We've talked about this before. In the Paschal Seder, in the Passover meal that Jewish people now have, they call it a saucer. I've explained this. Uh, a, a cup, but it's actually a saucer, and you take drops of wine and you count out those judgments that were poured out on Egypt. Hoshek, darkness, frogs, svardaya, blood, dam, and you throw them in and you fill this saucer with the wine, or like dregs of wine, counting out up, filling it up for judgment. God pours out the judgment all at once. He lets the wicked get away with things. He lets them think they're getting away with it. And when he lets them get away with it, they do more of it. They do more of it because they think they can do it with impunity. But once the cup is filled up, he pours out his wrath all at once. But what happens is, ultimately, they turn against the people of God and try to kill them. This has happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It will happen again at the close of the age. And with the uh, sixth, fifth seal, with the fifth seal <clears throat> from the fourth horseman of, of Revelation, um, Satan is going to try to destroy all believers. And then he's going to turn on the Jews. When the church's faithful church is rescued, or the faithful believers, I should say, the church won't exist per se. When the believers are rescued, he's going to go after Israel and the Jews. Well, this is a blood judgment. This is described as a blood judgment. Um, Jesus spoke of, of this, telling in Matthew 23, the blood of all the martyrs is on you from the time of Abel to the present day. The blood of all the martyrs, Abel being the first martyr killed by Cain, the blood of all the martyrs. This is a blood guilt, and a blood guilt always brings a blood judgment. I blood judgment for those who repent of their sin and accept Jesus. Okay, his blood was poured out on our behalf. Everyone else is blood guilty. Everyone else is blood guilty. Now we are warned in Hebrews, and it's not our subject tonight, 
that believers who continue to live immorally after becoming believers, they can become blood guilty. They spurn the blood of Christ. Notice Simon Magnus. It was after he professed faith and was baptized, he wanted the Holy Spirit in order to have self-aggrandizing power the way he did with the occult. Realizing the Holy Spirit was more powerful than the demonic power of the occult, he wanted to buy it. He wanted to turn it into a business. Well, the spirit of Simon Magnus is alive today. It's called the sin of simony or simony, when you try to sell the Holy Spirit. I recall the late deceiver, Morris Cirillo, when the Laughing and Drunken revival happened, Morris Cirillo actually had an advert in a magazine in England to get people to come to his conference and saying, if you pay this much of a conference fee and come to his conference, you will be guaranteed your part in the present move of God. <clears throat> the, the spirit of Toronto would be poured out on you if you came to his conference. This is simony. This is the sin of simony. It still exists. People try to buy, sell the Holy Spirit for their personal profit and aggrandizement. The word faith money preachers are simply the Simon Magnuses of our day. Um, the Benny Hins of this world. That's the sin of simony. That's what they're doing. It's exactly the sin of simony. The Roman Catholic Church has its own version of it. It's when you try to bribe somebody to get the vote for a candidate to be the Pope. And when they have their a conclave in the in the uh, Sistine Chapel to get the next Pope. Well, in fact, that went on for centuries. The rival banking families of Italy, like the Borgia families and the Medici families, it was all about money. They would pay bribes and so forth <clears throat> to get their man in the papacy, because by having their man in the papacy, it was to their financial, economic, and political advantage, these rival families, these rival banking families of Italy, the Borgia popes and so forth, the Medici family, terribly corrupt. They were like mafia families. They really were like mafia organized crime families. Um, th that's simony. That's how the Catholic Church de defines simony, as if they like to pretend that never happened, but, but it did. And so many of their popes became popes because of simony, as, as they define simony. Uh, I don't think they, the popes really have the Holy Spirit, but that's what they think. Nonetheless, this idea of simony is a big deal, and it still goes on. We also see that what's happening here in Egypt is not just past history, it is future history. Those judgments on Egypt happen again to the whole planet. Egypt is a microcosm of the human biosphere where people live, and Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist and his magicians, pictures of the false prophet. Nonetheless, let's move on and see what else it is telling us in verse 7. Verse 17. Look with me, please, to Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. These have power to shut up the sky in order that it may not rain during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. The two witnesses are going to demonstrate the same kind of power as Moses and Aaron. They are going to demonstrate the same power uh, against Antichrist as Moses and Aaron demonstrated against Pharaoh. Okay. When we read this story in Exodus, we're looking at the future, and we're looking at the present. At the present, it's the same thing, the occult, the, an occult getting into the church. Simon Magnus, Simon Magnus. It's not past history. It goes on now, okay? When we look at these judgments on the Nile and on the biosphere, it is 
coming again. And again, I have no doubt that what's taking place now and the conflict that's, that's growing between Ethiopia and Egypt is, is, a, is a, of some prophetic importance. I have no doubt. Let's continue looking at the book of Exodus now, verse 18. The fish that were in the Nile will die. The, fit, the Nile will become foul, smelling badly from the dead fish. And the Egyptians will find difficulty drinking water from the Nile. This is going to be happening. Happening. Drinking water is going to be very, very difficult to find during the judgments of Revelation chapter 16. These judgments are the bowl judgments, the vile judgments. Life depends on water, and there won't be much of it. These are the vile judgments, the final judgments that take place after the faithful believers are long removed. The Lord said to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers and over their streams and over their pools. Again, this is speaking of the Nile Delta. You can go there today and see the marshes, the pools, and so forth, what he was talking about. Okay. And over the, all the reservoirs of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Whatever you try to draw the stuff out of, it's contaminated with blood. Can you imagine when iron and steel pipes and PVC are contaminated? It's going to happen again. Now, under the reign of Claudius, the emperor Claudius, who is named in the book of Acts, uh, and who kicked the believers out of Rome, when the believing Jews were persecuted by the non-believing Jews, he expelled the Jews from Rome, uh, all Jews from Rome, proving that Christianity was just seen as a sect within Judaism at that time. He replaced Caligula, the demonized madman. Claudius himself was a homosexual. But anyway, under the time of Claudius, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire was Egypt. They depended on the Nile Delta. The whole Roman Empire depended on the Nile Delta for grain production. The whole Roman Empire, that is the hub of the known world, most of the known world, depended on the Nile and, and on the Nile Delta. That was the grain basket. That was the steppes of Europe or the North American Great Plains of the Roman Empire. It was that. It was that. Um, always important. Cotton is a very water-consuming product to grow. If you want to grow cotton and make fabric from cotton, it takes a lot of water. Now, the Israelis and the Americans have experimented with ways to recycle water in cotton production, but cotton is something that just takes a lot of water in the Middle East, a lot of water. You see today, like 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 that uh, that Christian guy that is a conservative, that my pillow guy, that you know the TV commercials in the states of, of my pillow. Well, where is he getting these high quality fabrics? He's getting it from cotton grown in Giza, grown in the Nile Delta. Okay, it it requires water. The reason that that cotton used to make that fabric is so. Uh, rich in its texture and the cotton is such high quality is again because of the Nile. It's because of the Nile Delta. It depends on the Nile. Um, fabric, um, food, uh, everything depended on it. Well, when God pours out his judgment, his, his vile judgments, the things that the global economy depends on, not just for financial function, but for survival, for human survivability, are going to be hit hard in God's judgment. And that is going to include and be predominated by God's judgment on the waters. On the waters. Remember, the wicked woman sits on many waters, many nations. The waters is where the judgment is going to come. Well, let's go. 
further now. We're looking at the future. Okay. Verse 20, so Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. He lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. And the blood was throughout all the land. In the Hebrew text, three times, it says that the water became foul-smelling, disgusting. Just think of, of, of stagnant water. But this is what it was the rotting flesh of the fish floating, the corpse, the dead fish floating in the water, emitting this horrible, horrible aroma. And then it was, and it was all blood. <clears throat> and the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul. The Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile, and the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. In Revelation, in chapter 16, that's not just going to be Egypt. Egypt is a figure of the world. This is going to be a global phenomena and a global judgment. But look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing with their secret arts, arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord said. <laughs> Pharaoh's own magicians made the situation worse. When the world, when those who are animated and motivated by Satan and the demonic try to address a crisis of God's judgment, they only make it worse. Anything they do, they will only make the situation worse. They're already under God's judgment. And the way in which they respond to it will only make their own situation worse. You just think of someone who has a, uh, like, impetigo, or some uh, children get that, or someone with some kind of um, dermatological infection. And the dermatologist says, this is going to itch. We're going to put this lotion on it only, but no matter how much it itches, don't scratch it. If you scratch it, you're going to aggravate it and make it worse, and it's going to spread more. And you see this. People who get poison oak, poison ivy, people who get these things instead of relying on the columbine ocean, they scratch and they spread it, and it gets worse. It gets worse. Well, let's continue. They did the same. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. He was not even phased. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Despotic leaders do not care about the people. Joseph Stalin did not care about the people of Russia or Ukraine or Lithuania or Kazakhstan. He didn't care about the people. He didn't care about the Ukrainians. He didn't care, you know, about Lithuanian people. He didn't care about Russian people. He didn't care about anybody. A Tartar people, he didn't care. Ultimately, Hitler did not care about the Germans and Austrians. He didn't care. He said he didn't care at the end of his life in the bunker. He said because they were not the Ubermensch, the Superman who predominated, they bought it on themselves. <laughs> well, they bought it on themselves by listening to him. Hitler didn't care about the Germans. Um, whenever you have despots, they don't care. I read an article about two weeks ago by a, <clears throat> a journalist and a uh, a columnist, a journalist, who wrote for a feminist magazine, and she called Cosmopolitan. Cosmo, she wrote, wrote for Cosmopolitan, and she knew these people like Betty Fernand, and she knew Ellen Gurley, Helen Gurley Brown, one of these founders of feminism. And she said the whole thing was a commercial racket. They did it to make money. 
the, the, the whole cosmopolitan ethos, she said they did it. It was a business. They manipulated these women for financial reasons and sold them this bill of goods, but they didn't even believe it themselves. They didn't even believe it themselves. The female producer of a TV show, I thought it was stupid. I watched it, tried to watch an episode of it on an airplane once to see what everybody was talking about. And it was so disgusting, I turned it off. What was it called? Sex in the City. I watched about 15 minutes of it. And if that, and I put it off because it was too stupid, but I wanted to see why it was so popular. So it was on an airplane, I put it stupid. The woman who was the producer of that and the mentality that it promoted among women, she said she's not happy. She's not happy as a woman. Ellen Gurley Brown said she was not happy. The very women who founded these things were not happy. Now, I understand in the beginning you had people like Betty Fernand and you had people trying to correct obvious injustices, such as not having equal pay for equal jobs. Everything begins right. But because we live in a sinful world, a moral entropy is going to kick in and every, something that begins good is going to end bad. Almost every denomination that you see is corrupt now began right. The Church of England, that they were the Methodists, the, the Church of Scotland, they began right. There's something bad now, but 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 they began right. Well, if that's what happens in the church, what happens in the world? Look at labor unions. Labor unions began right. Then they were taken over by gangsters and racketeers, and they became predatory. They they simply exploited the very workers they were designed to represent, and they wound up costing people jobs instead of saving jobs. Um, unions began, right? Public education, state-funded education in Britain and America began with a good motive, to give literacy and numeracy to working classes, uh, to have a literate society. State schools, public schools began right. All of these things begin with good motives, but they all become corrupted. They all degenerate. That is the nature of the world. And it also is the nature of the worldly church, unfortunately. But the people who run it will be like Pharaoh. They will have no concern for the people they are bamboozling. They're in it for the money. They're in it for whatever they can get out of it. They're in it for themselves. They don't care about the people. They certainly do not care about the people. Joseph Stalin, claiming to be a socialist hero, referred to the people who he, he would just use, in this, as use as, as useful idiots. He saw the people as useful idiots. Um, Malcolm X, for all of his faults, and I didn't always agree with him, he understood that white liberals see black Americans as useful idiots. That's how he sees them, as, as merely as useful idiots. Um, that's the way it worked. So that concludes the situation. That's the way it is. One second, please. Um, we know this was the reality of the situation. That's the way it is. We will see these very things come into play once again. We are going to see the environmental judgments. We are going to see the power of Pharaoh. We're going to see all of these things. And we're going to see an explosion of the occult and people like Simon Magnus even making their way into the church. Remember, as we looked at these things, it is not just past history. It is present history. And it is future history. Thank you so much for listening. We'll continue next week with Chapter 8. God bless.